Good morning, everybody. Let's all gather in this morning. Uh, turn your Bibles to John 4 is where we're going to get started this morning. That'll be our first reference. We're talking about this morning, we're beginning our study of paterology, uh, otherwise more commonly known as the doctrine of God the Father. So we're talking about our Heavenly Father for a few weeks, and when talking about the Heavenly Father, uh, there are many different ways you can talk about what we believe to be true about God the Father. I'm going to choose, I like the hat, I'm going to choose, and the hat, uh, to do it, at least starting off, by talking about his attributes or his characteristics. What makes the Heavenly Father the Heavenly Father? If I was to talk about Amanda, there are certain personality traits that you combine that make her who she is. So it'd be the same with any of us. The things that make us who we are as a person, when I think about Josh, or I think about my parents, or I think about Sylvia, I think about specific characteristics that make each of you who you are. So what we're going to start this week is we're going to look at the things that make the Heavenly Father who He is. So we're studying God by His characteristics. And the first characteristic I want to make mention of is God is spiritual. God is spiritual. Now you might say, I have no idea what that means. Well, what that means is that God does not exist within our physical realm. But he does exist within the spiritual realm. Right, uh, The spiritual world interacts with the physical world with relative ease. And we see that all throughout Scripture. Right, We see God sending angels to the earth to interact with people. We see God manifesting himself in many different ways. Um, so the spiritual world interacts with the physical world in uh, relative ease. But the only way for a being of the physical world... To interact with the spiritual world is to pass through the shadow of death or else be present when the Lord raptures out the church in the end times. Those are the only ways that we as physical beings can interact within the actual spiritual world. Even things like prayer, that is God interacting with us, right? Because all we're doing is talking, right? It's God who knows that we're talking to him and it's God who chooses to interact with us in our prayers and listen right uh, any good husband knows listening is an activity right and sometimes a very strenuous activity no offense ladies but you know guys are just hardwired differently you know if a guy has a problem four words in you're done you know ladies we want to get the whole thing out we want to look underneath it we want to look sideways we want to figure out from every angle so husbands know sometimes listening is work even ladies uh, for some people no offense people listening is work right it's an activity it's an action listening is something you do right it's not just sitting there thinking about what you want for dinner if a good listener is somebody who actually hears what the other person is saying and responds in kind 
right? So when the Heavenly Father hears our prayers, he's doing something. He's active. He's involved when he listens to our prayers and responds to our prayers in some form or another. So God interacts with us through the spiritual world into the physical, but we cannot enter into the spiritual world except through uh, the shadow of death, as we've referred to, or uh, through the rapture. And nobody knows when that day will, will be. The Bible says in John chapter 4, in verse 24, God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, there are many who uh, believe that this means God does not have a, um, a physical being, right? In other words, he doesn't have a body. He doesn't have a true form, right? He's spirit, so he's formless. And I think that thinking comes about as a result of we can't see spiritual things. Right? So people think that because they can't see God's truest form, because it is a spiritual form, that it doesn't exist. That's just not true. The fact of the matter is, just because it's spiritual doesn't mean it's formless. Right? Uh, the mansions that the Lord is preparing for us in heaven, those are spiritual, right? They don't, they're not within the physical realm. And yet, they exist and have a form. Angels that dwell in the glory of God, the cherubims and the seraphims that the Bible talks about that circle the throne. They exist. They have a form. There's a throne. It has a form. These things are not analogies. They're real. And I have no reason to believe that God has any less of a form or a true form than the rest of them. God is capable of manifesting himself physically in any way that he wants. But very few people have had the honor of seeing God in his truest form. Right? Some mentions of God's physical manifestations are 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 29, which reads, That thine eyes may be open toward this house night and day. We're talking about God having eyes. Right? 1 Kings 8 is Solomon's prayer in dedicating the temple. Uh, my name shall be there, he goes on to say, that thou mayest hearken unto the prayer which thy servant shall make toward this place. Psalm 34, 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. Now it's not just the eyes of the Lord, now it's the ears of the Lord. You say that God is incapable of seeing without physically having eyes or incapable of hearing without physically having ears. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. You say, well, then why does God have to have eyes? Why does God have to have ears? Because the Bible says he does. And they'll take you to another portion of scripture where it talks about the wings of the Lord. And they'll say, well, I guess now he's a big chicken. They say, no, that's allegory. That's not literal. They say, well, how do you know the difference? Well, because we know of some that have physically seen the truest form of God. If God wanted to present himself as wings, I suppose he could do that as well. But in his truest form, uh, we have no mention of wings. Isaiah 65, 2, he says, I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people. So now we see the hands of the Lord. Genesis 3, 8 
tells us about the physical manifestation of God. It says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Let me ask you a question. How do you walk without legs? God has legs. Moses was one of the only people allowed to see the glory of God in its truest form. Exodus 33. Let's turn over to you real quick. Exodus chapter 33. <coughs> Exodus 33, and it says in verse 20, And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. Now here's my question again. If in Exodus 33, 20, we see God saying, that he has a face, but it cannot be looked upon or it will kill people. How is that not God's truest form? Why would God manifest or create for himself a face that kills people if he didn't have to? In my opinion, God wouldn't do that. If he could create a face so that people could look upon, he would do so, and he did do so. And his name is Jesus. But here we're talking about the truest form of God. The Lord said, Behold, in verse 21, There's a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock. And it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts. But thou shalt face, but uh, my face shall not be seen. So now we see that God has back parts, right? And, and no matter which way you slice it, this is the truest form of God. That Moses was able to look upon any part of God. This is the same story where later on in this same portion of Scripture, Moses comes back from this place where he has seen the truest form of God, and that is where his face glows. This is that story. He's seen the physical face of God. He spent time communing with God and, and receiving his commands, and it's after this trip he returns and his face is shining because, he has, because his skin, his face, has absorbed within it the truest and purest form of light that there is and is now illuminating that light for itself. God is spiritual, but he is not without, uh, not without form. Exodus 34, let's look at really quick. Exodus 34 and verse 5 which says, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and in truth. So God is spiritual, but being spiritual, and this is where we, we fail, we mess up, is because sometimes we think of the spiritual world as being less than the physical world, right? 
we think uh, the, the physical world, this is the world we can interact with. The physical world is the one we can see and smell and touch and taste. That's the physical world. And below that is the spiritual things. You know, you can't really see them. You can't really interact with them. We believe they're there, uh, but they're not like the physical world. When we've got those things flipped, the fact of the matter is the spiritual world is by far the more superior one. And the only reason we can't see it is because our bodies are not attuned to its vibrations. Right? There are portions of scripture that support this. That our eyes were not created with the ability to see the spiritual world. God created it so that we can't see some things that do exist. That our ears are not attuned to the proper frequency to hear the spiritual world going on around us. The spiritual beings existing around us. Uh, one such example of this I've mentioned several times is the story of Elijah in the wilderness. And he's surrounded by an army of enemies and his uh, servant is fearful for him. And he says, oh Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And what God does is that he is, enhances the human eyeball in that moment so that it can see more than it is normally capable of seeing. And in that moment, that man's eyes are able to glimpse upon the army of the Lord surrounding the wilderness upon all the hilltops with sword hilt in hand, ready to defend Elisha. Right? This is a story in the Bible. There is a spiritual world that is not beneath us, it is beyond us. It is too wonderful for, for us. Our finite human brains cannot comprehend its wonders. There is a world beyond us full of glory and wonder and amazement that our human mind, our human eyes, our human, there's music that exists that your ears cannot receive because it's too wonderful for your ears. There are colors and visions out there that exist that are too wonderful for your eyes and they cannot perceive them. You imagine a new color. We think we know all the colors, but I guarantee you there are colors in heaven, lights and glory in heaven that we have not even begun to fathom. The spiritual, this is what we learn when we study that God is spiritual. We learn that it is better than us. It is better than the physical world. It is beyond us. It's out there. There are angels and demons all around us, and that is a lesson we will study a little later on. And how those angels and demons interact with our world. So that's so we see that God is spiritual. <coughs> We see secondly this morning is God is glorious. God is glorious. Now what does that mean God is glorious? Well, the Bible teaches us in Luke 19, if you want to go ahead and prep your Bibles for that, we're going to read here in a second, that in our world, the glory of God must be praised. This is a fundamental aspect of creation itself. God must be praised. It is as true as gravity. It is as true as inertia, centripetal force, these fundamental laws of physics. It is a fundamental law of creation itself, of the universe, that somewhere, someone must be praising God. 
and we're going to look at that here in Luke 19. Chapter 10, 15, 17, 18. Here, Luke 19, we're going to start reading in verse 37. Give everybody a minute to get down there. And in verse 37 it says, And when he was come nigh, even now, at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he, said, and he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. It is a fact of our world that God must be praised. And if we, as humans, as Christians, as believers, do not cry out praise unto God, the earth itself would shout praise unto the Lord. Because God must be praised. It says in Psalm 96, in verse 8, let's look there really quick. Psalm 96. This is easier for you guys using your phones. I like to keep a feel of a Bible in my hand. Might uh, throw out a random sword drill one day. Psalm 96. Psalm 96, and we're going to start in verse 8. Which says, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established, that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful. And all that is therein, then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice. Did you know that the trees of the wood were capable of rejoicing? Did you know that the sea could roar with the glory and gladness of God? Did you know that the field could be joyful with the presence of God? If we did not praise God, the earth itself would shout out glory unto the Lord because he is so glorious, because he is so wonderful. It is a fundamental fact of life that something so good and so pure must be praised. God is glorious. We see, thirdly, this morning, God is self-existent. 
in direct contrast to the human, God needs nothing to exist, which is why he cannot die. You've heard uh, the, the old adage for people that don't believe in God, they say God is dead, sort of thing. God cannot die. He needs nothing to live. Therefore, he cannot die. The human needs oxygen, food, warmth, but not too much warmth. And if our, any of our biological systems are tampered with at all, it'll lead to our death too. And when you think about it, the human being is not so tough and enduring. The human being is actually quite fragile. You mess with us almost any way at all and we can die. But God, God exists outside of the very concept of need. God is without need for anything. Therefore, anything that God does is not out of necessity, but out of desire. Nothing God does is because he has to. Everything God does is because he wants to. Therefore, everything God does for you is not because he was obligated to. Nothing God does for us is because he was put into a corner socially. You know, he, he felt like, well, I guess I said I'd do this. I may as well go ahead and do it. No, no, no. He wants to do everything that he does. Sometimes, you've ever been in one of those situations where you've obligated yourself to do something you made plans a week ahead of time or something and then the day comes around and you wake up and you think oh man I don't want to do this today and you get up and you kind of go and you make yourself do it you're like I don't really want to be here but I, I said I would I want to keep my word and I'm gonna go and I'll try to have a good attitude about it that has never been the way that God does anything if God does something it is in full desire to do so. That even falls into the category of salvation. When God saves us, it is because he wanted to. It's not as though God the Father lets us in because God the Son loved us and he loves his Son, so I guess we can get in with him. No, no, no. God the Father does everything he does because he wants to. Uh, I had a Bible teacher tell me that, you know, don't, don't ever think of it like, you know, God the Father says to us, listen, I'm going to let you in here because of my son. I love my son, and he loves you, so I'm going to let you in. But you better toe the line, buddy, because one step out, you're gone. No, it's not like that. He loves us as much as he loves his son. John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The only reason Jesus was born, the only reason we celebrate Christmas to begin with, Jesus' birth is because he loved us so much he was willing to give up his only begotten son. Can you imagine how much God the Father loved God the Son? Can you imagine how much he loves us that he was willing to let his son become mortal, become the God-man, come to this earth, be able and willing to die and not just die but suffer more than is humanly imaginable in ways we can't begin to fathom 
that there that as he took our sin upon the cross, there was a supernatural schism between the Father and the Son, so that the Father could not even look upon the Son anymore. As a concept in theology, I can't even wrap my head around God could not commune with God. Two parts of the Holy Trinity were were severed from each other in a supernatural way that I can't even begin to understand. Endured all of that, not because he had to, but because he chose to. He wanted to save us. Everything that God does for you is from a desire to do so. When you pray to God and God answers your prayers, it's not because he's obligated to do that. It's not, well, they followed the rules. They prayed in all the just, just the right ways. Now I guess I'll answer their prayer. No, when God answers your prayer, he wants to. Right? If God doesn't want to answer your prayer, there's a good reason for it. It's not good for us. We don't need it. God knows best. But God has no necessity. He's self-existent. Genesis 1 teaches us that God created all matter in the universe, right? All the things that existed, existed because God created it so, right? Now, let me blow your minds a little bit this morning. This is break your brain a little bit. God created darkness, right? Think about that. Let that sink into your head. God created darkness, so what existed before darkness? There was a nothingness before there was darkness. When you and me think about nothing, we think about you know, vast, empty space. We think about just the darkness and emptiness of space. But there was a time where that didn't even exist. There was no darkness. There was nothing. What is greater than God, more evil than the devil? The poor have it, the rich need it, and if you eat it, you die. Nothing. Nothing is greater than God. Nothing is more evil than the devil. The poor have nothing, the rich need nothing, and if you eat nothing, you will eventually die. There was a time where nothing, not even darkness, existed just to break your brains a little bit. But what that means is that God existed before all matter in the universe existed. That is a biblical principle. That's a Bible fact. Which means he has no need for any of that matter in the universe in order to exist. Genesis 1 teaches us that. So if you want something in the Bible, you say, well, can you prove that in the Bible that God is self-existent? Yes, I can. Genesis 1. God existed before anything else did. Therefore, he needs nothing in order to exist. Exodus chapter 3. Let's turn to real quick. Exodus chapter 3 is the story of Moses 
uh, having his conversation with God through the burning bush. And we've the last few weeks we've touched on this here and there, different aspects of it. But there is one particular aspect we we're going to look at this, uh, this morning. Exodus 3, we're going to start reading in verse 11. And Moses said unto God, Who am I, that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, they shall say unto me, What is his name, and what shall I say unto them? Now this needs some explaining. Because first of all, Moses was born, not born, but raised as the daughter of Pharaoh. Or the, the, the daughter of, the son of the daughter of Pharaoh. You know what I'm trying to say. He was born into the royal family of Egypt, basically. Raised, anyway, into the royal family of Egypt. So he had very Egyptian thinking ways. Right? The Egyptians, they had a god for everything. They had a god for the sun. His name was Ra. That's about the only one I know. Uh, they had a god for the river. They had a god for uh, the cattle and a God for the harvest. That's why we saw those 10 plagues the way that we did. Because each one of those 10 plagues was the Heavenly Father disproving Egyptian thinking, Egyptian uh, religion. You've got a sun God, I'm going to block the sun out. Right? I'm more powerful than your sun God. He says, you've got a river God, the river turned to blood. I just killed your river God. Right? You've got a God for the cattle. All the cattle are dead. Terrible disease has come over them. You've got a God for the harvest. I'm going to send a plague of locusts to devour your, har your harvest. Each one of those plagues was disproving their religion in all these different gods to prove to them that the one true God was the God of the Israelites. You see, God wasn't just attacking Pharaoh and trying to set his people free. God was trying to show them the way of salvation, even all the way back in Exodus, even to the Egyptians. And you look at these things, and you see these things. But in Exodus 3, uh, uh, even Israel, they had been in Egypt for a very long time, and they started to develop some Egyptian thinking. Right? Like, if you're in that culture long enough, you just, there are some things you start to pick up, isn't there? That's just how culture works. In our culture, it's the same way. We have to learn not to superimpose our religion on the Bible. Right? We have to read the Bible in the culture it was in in its day and time. Right? Very different than our society today. In the Bible times, in the Bible's part of the world, they had a very, uh, honor shame based society right the things people did they weren't necessarily based on uh, trying to achieve something or being considered successful or you know anything like it is for us today back then everything was about bringing honor to your name to the name of your family or avoiding bringing shame 
to you and your family and your generations beyond. It was a very honor-shame-based society. So you read those things into it. Well, they were starting to absorb the Egyptian culture. They were starting to talk like the Egyptians. They were starting to dress like the Egyptians. And eventually they would learn to solve their problems like the Egyptians. And what the Egyptians do when you've got a problem, make a new god. Right? We'll create a new god, and that god will fix our problems. That's the Egyptian culture. We saw that happen at the bottom of Mount Sinai. Right? That was Egyptian culture. That was what they were used to. They were used to solving your problems the way the Egyptians do. Moses is gone. We're scared. We don't know. What do we do? We'll do what the Egyptians taught us. We'll make a god. Right? That's why they did that. <clears throat> and so they spent all that time in the wilderness because God was having to pull that Egyptian culture out of them and reteach them to be the sons and daughters of Abraham. So Moses is saying here, okay, tell them that God is, is sending me, and that's fine, but which God, which one is sending me? That was Moses' question. Which name, uh, the, what name is the name of the God that's sending me? And this is why God answers the way that he does. Verse 14, God said unto Moses, I am that I am. Right? And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent you. Now, if you've heard the story before, that's a really cool thing. It ties into the New Testament. Jesus comes along and, and they, you know, he's refuting Moses' uh, uh, teachings. They have said of old, but I say unto you, uh, uh, Moses gave you this uh, writing of divorcement for your, uh, for your own selfishness, uh, but this was not originally of the Lord. And so on forth. And they, they finally get frustrated with them. And they say, what, did you know better than Moses, who was our ancestor, who gave us the law? And Jesus' response to that was, before Moses was, I am. That was God's response to them in that moment. Claiming that he was as much God then as he is now. That he was and is the great I am. But what is that name I am. What is that? Well, in the original Hebrew, that's the name Yahweh, or sometimes pronounced Jehovah. And the name Jehovah just quite simply means the self-existent one. That's what it means. He is the self-existent one, and he tells Moses this here in Exodus 3, because they have had the names of God in the past, but they forgot them. They lost them. Go back to Genesis 22. You can look at that moment at Mount Moriah after Abraham has uh, been willing to sacrifice his son. God stops him. They find the ram caught in the thicket. They make that sacrifice. And then what does Abraham do? Somebody tell me. After that. He tries to kill Isaac. He finds the ram caught in the thicket. They make the offering. And then what does Abraham do? He worships God, but he does something very specific. He, he, he named that place. Anybody remember the name of the place? No? Okay. Jehovah Jireh. Yeah. Jehovah Jireh means the self-existent one who provides. Right? The Lord will provide himself a lamb. The Lord who provides. That's what he named the place. But Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Jireh. So 
They already had the name of God before Exodus 3, long before Abraham had it. You can't tell me he didn't pass that down to his kids. I guarantee you Isaac knew the name Jehovah. I guarantee you Jacob knew the name Jehovah. But when they moved into Egypt, they lost God and they lost his name. And here in Exodus 3, at the burning bush, God is giving his people, reteaching them his name. This is my name. I am Jehovah. I am the self-existent one. Why is he doing it here? Why is he doing that now? Why didn't he do it before? He's doing, he's doing it now to separate himself from the other false gods that they have come to believe in. He's doing it to say, I'm not the God of the river. I'm not the God of the sun. And a lot of people say God is a God of love. And I, and I want us to understand that God is love. He's the source of all love in the world. But he is not the God of love in the same way that, say, Aphrodite was the goddess of love, right? He is a, he, love is one of his characteristics, but that is not his sole attribute as God, right? So he's defining himself differently than all these other Egyptian gods. He's trying to get them to understand not polygamy or not, not polytheism, right? Not multiple gods. One theism, monotheism, right? The one true God of heaven. I am it. I am. I'm not these other gods. I don't need a statue. I don't need sacrifices. I don't need my name etched on the side of a tree. I am the self-existent one. I exist whether you acknowledge me or not, right? I am the self-existent one, unlike these other gods. I exist without your help, right? The self-existent one. If God is self-existent as the Bible defines him, then he is unshakable in his being. Nothing and no one can undo who or what he is. Which means that God is a fixed point throughout all of time and space. And even if the whole world shifted and changed to the point of being totally unrecognizable, you can count on the fact that you will be able to find God where he is, as he is, forever. And no matter what changes in your life, God can be an anchor that will never change. Malachi 3.6, he says, For I am the Lord, I change not. You can count on God being these things we've talked about and more forever. He is spiritual. He is glorious. He is self-existent. You can count on God. Right? And if things don't go the way you plan for them to, it's because he's got something better planned for you. Just be patient. Right? He is God. He is right. He is righteous. He is glorious. He is spiritual. So he is more powerful than any of us. He is beyond all of us. And he's also self-existent. He doesn't need us, even though we desperately need him. And he has a desire and a glory and a joy in being there for us. That is our lesson for this morning. I thank everybody who's here this morning. I want to thank everybody joining us over on Facebook Live. I'm ending on time today. So we will be back at 11 o'clock for the Sunday morning service. Thank you for watching.